0: Already it felt like something that we had loved had just been papered over. And that feeling happened again and again and again and again and again. David Demchuk,
1: this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it Euchre for the Leathery Crowd? David Demchuk has been writing for performance, print, and digital media for nearly 40 years. He's got a special interest in queerness and monstrosity. His debut novel, 2017's The Bone Mother, was shortlisted and nominated for numerous awards and was the first horror novel to ever be nominated for the prestigious Giller Prize. David grew up in Winnipeg, where he first came out, and moved to Toronto in his early 20s. We talk about how AIDS robbed a generation of gay men, of mentors, and teachers, so I'm particularly thankful and touched to have sat down with him for this personal history lesson.
0: Welcome to the show, David. Oh, well, thank you for having me, Michael.
1: So before we get started, you had a novel out very recently that did quite well. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: Okay. So, after many years, many, many years of writing in uh, theater and assorted media, I unexpectedly made the move to fiction. I had started writing a play that was a series of monologues, and partway through it, I started to realize that it could be a book. And that book became uh, the novel The Bone Mother, which came out in 2017. And was nominated for a Giller Prize and an Amazon.ca First Novel Award and a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's a horror novel. um, But as you could tell from what I was saying earlier, it's a horror novel that's in a whole bunch of different components or sections. And they all add up together into, depending on the reader, uh, an overarching story and, uh, and, and a sort of a portrait of a community of monsters and the people who live alongside them. Oh fantastic okay yeah. that
1: that last bit is what really got my ears perked up. a community of monsters, okay, so uh, I wonder how what monstrosities we might see in these songs <laughs> some perhaps some
0: there are a few mm-hmm. uh, th- i i've had an I've had an interest in horror. All my life. And I have have um, a pronounced interest in the overlap between queerness and monstrosity. And that's completely reflected in the book. I should tell you what the book is about. The book is about – it's about a, um, a collection of creatures, uh, a community of them, that are – In potentially their final days of existence, they're the creatures of Eastern European mythology and folklore. And they are clustered in three small villages on the uh, Romanian-Ukrainian border, just as we're entering World War II. And so each of them shares their own story and, and... their own crisis that they're facing. And, uh, and then interspersed, there are five longer stories, which are from the children and grandchildren of these creatures who have made their way to the new country, to Canada, and um, are having their own experiences and their own challenges. That's fantastic. Uh,
1: So, you live in Canada. You are Canadian. I am. Uh, You you, you live in Toronto.
0: I live in Toronto. I was born in Winnipeg. Uh, Winnipeg was really sort of my formative place. It was where I became an avid reader. It's where I learned to love horror. It's where a certain prairie gothic sensibility is in place. And, And the book is very much a reaction to that.
1: So, imagining you in your youth in Winnipeg, and uh, it's where you learned to be a reader, you said. What place did music have in your life, culturally?
0: Well, um... I was born in 1962, so I was growing up during the period where you would hear that there was a Woodstock festival happening, and me asking my mother, "Oh, can we go to that?" and her <laughs> going, "No, don't be silly." <laughs> and and watching a lot of television that was very strongly music based, listening to a lot of top forty radio, um, going and buying for myself, you know, for the first time forty five singles that I would listen. To on the record player, and you know, then my mother promptly going and getting headphones so that she wouldn't have to hear them, and uh, and those kinds of things. Music Mm. was a very important cultural touchstone, and at the time, communicated a lot about what was going on in the world that was Mm. very removed from me and my Winnipeg life. Um, Things like the Vietnam War and protests, and you know, and drugs and free love and you know, heartbreak. And stuff that, when I was a child, was really fascinating and also um, quite disturbing. You often saw a huge contrast between what was conveyed in the news and then what was conveyed through the music of the period. And, um, and some songs, of course, didn't get played on the radio or on television because they were too shocking or too controversial. And you were aware of that, too. That was part of the whole cultural discourse.
1: So, the first song you've selected for us is not one that I think of as being sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's a bit more conservative. Um, But maybe you will correct me on that. What what do we have up first? So, the first song is called Superstar.
0: The song was originally called Groupie, and it—that that is exactly what it's about. It's about a person, fairly obviously a woman, but not necessarily, who has fallen in love with a guy in a band who has had a one-night stand with her. And this is uh, made famous by the Carpenters, yes? It's made famous by the Carpenters. There have been a number of other covers that are quite compelling, but uh, the Carpenters did a really interesting version of it. Because it's simultaneously lush and bleak. Mm-hmm. And Karen Carpenter, in particular, she's in her prime as she is singing this song, but she brings a really just, there's an almost frightening edge. To some of the notes that she strikes as she makes her way through the piece. It's a, in its way, it's a really beautiful monologue that she, that she really brings to life. And her brother's attempts to, to sort of soften, I mean, I assume that's what he was doing, to sort of soften and romanticize the song, only make it more stark. So uh, were you a big fan of the song when you were young? I was fascinated. I was fascinated by the Carpenters overall, by the way that they were packaged and presented to to the listening public and to the viewing public, because at that point, it was very important for these kinds of acts to be on variety shows on television. And so they had a really lovely, glossy, squeaky clean quality to them. But Richard was always sort of like, you know, the plastic smile cheery buoyant guy and she was always wearing the heartache and it permeated almost everything she sang and we now know why but at the time the conflict that was apparent between these two aspects of this brother sister team it had an edge to it that I thought was really intriguing and i as a child was really drawn to all of their material um, and and of course now we look back and we see that there were a lot of singers and songwriters, performers in this period who were uh, battling with their own inner demons but also uh, struggling with how it was that that conventional entertainment wanted to present them how the media wanted to put them forward as sort of a false face on what was really going on in America and that was also quite captivating. I remained uh, intrigued by them for years, and even now today, I find her just an incredibly compelling performer. Did you have siblings? Oh yes, I had a younger brother who was not at all interested in any of this music. <laughs> okay, you can map these these
1: sister brother duo onto your own life. No, at all. not no. at all. He was
0: he. I mean, it was Winnipeg, and it was that period, and and he was about three years younger than me, and he was interested in heavy metal music and rock and roll and acid rock and things like that. That <laughs> that I I found interesting, but I had no real way into. I mean, also, I think it's obvious when you have a song like this that it's the gayness in me as a child that is completely responding. And there were a lot of sort of we we have an image of who the gay divas were starting in the later 70s but when we talk about the 60s and the early to mid 70s there's not necessarily a lot of connection or understanding to who those people were anymore and i think it's important that we look back at them mm-hmm. karen carpenter Absolutely had a huge gay following. There was the tragic aspect to every part of her life that I think drew people in, but also it was the it was the level of talent that she had. Um, Bette Midler turned that song into a big hit as well, maybe a cult hit, but particularly a cult hit within the queer community. She also made it what felt like four times longer. But uh, <laughs> but it, she plumbed the depths of emotion with it as well. And I think that that her recording it helped to reinforce Karen Carpenter and Karen Carpenter's work as a queer icon. But, I mean, we had a number of people. We had Mama Cass Elliot, uh, who also died tragically. We had Janis Joplin, who also died tragically. <laughs> we did have a few of them who lived, like mm-hmm. Patti Smith and Grace Slick and a few others. But these, these women did a lot to... To transform the way that that we saw women in in modern culture and modern media.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, off the top of my head, you're the fourth uh, gay man that I've spoken to for this podcast. I apologize if I'm forgetting someone, um, but I I believe all all of us. And, you know, I'm I'm gay as well. All of us would be in agreement that there is something different about youthful gay taste. Do you have any theories as to as to why that is because it's it's a rare 8 or 9 year old who knows what he is and yet your your taste is somehow calibrated in a way that's different to the straight boys?
0: Oh, I I think I knew that I was different when I was much younger. I was like 3 or 4 or 5 and I already had very different interests. I mean, to a certain extent, I was interested in what my female friends of that period were interested in much more than I was, in what my male peers were interested in. Mm-hmm. So we can start there. And I was very female identified as a child, not in terms of my own, my own gender or sexuality, but certainly in terms of interests. I was much more interested in spending time with my mother and her sisters than I was with my uncles. I was much more interested in spending time with female friends and female cousins. I was much more interested in female singers, in female actors, you know, actors in, and just, I found that their worlds were magical worlds that I could immerse myself in. And they were also really emotionally accessible worlds compared to those of men of that period. And that, to me, was also a big appeal. Some of it was melodrama as opposed to being realism, and that was a function of the period as well. But big emotions, strong women, and they were also the funny women. They were, they were the odd women. They were the funny women. They were the women who didn't fit in. And I felt there was more communication to me through that than there was through the men of the period. Someone like Phyllis Diller or Agnes Moorhead on Bewitched was interesting to me in a way that, you know, someone like don Knotts or or jim neighbors was not um now had i known at the time that jim neighbors was gay i might have paid more attention <laughs> the, one of the few sort of cr- characters from from my youth although he was not out he was so very obviously gay was paul lind paul lind in anything that he was in which included bewitched included hollywood squares included uh bye bye birdie where he in, you know inexplicably played a dad um He was, of course, you know, a great big gay neon sign in the middle of my living room. And while I didn't want to be him, I understood in some way, in a Venn diagram somewhere, there was some overlap. And and that too. There was a lot of covert queer communication coming through the television set during that period, and also through stereo speakers. There were a lot of covertly gay songs, gay singers that were also a big part of that period.
1: Yeah. I just, I'm, I'm continually fascinated about how we pick them, pick it up. We pick up those signals so early.
0: I know. Uh, we have, huh. you know, it's like a radar. You know, they call it a gaydar. <laughs> and of course my gaydar miss, you know, malfunctions all the time. But, but there is something that we are definitely attuned to. And mm-hmm. I think it's a kind of an ache a lot mm-hmm. of the times or mm-hmm. a kind of defense that, 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 these people these characters put up as part of their daily lives and we go oh yeah something about that resonates with me
1: uh so why don't we move on to your next song which is don't leave me this way by Thelma houston
0: this way is, it's not the first disco song, but it's certainly one of the first that I heard. And when it was released, I would have been about 14 or 15 years old. And I was aware that there was now a change in the way that music was being presented, mm-hmm. even to the likes of me in the middle of the prairies. There was a certain amount of uh, soul and R and starting to make its way, we would see more of the American music that we weren't getting in the top forty in Canada. And and I found the emergence of disco to be, I mean, as gay men did in the time, to be very lush, to be very erotic, to be a really uh, theatrical display that we hadn't seen in a lot of the music leading up to it. And I was really enticed by that. And I went to my first gay space when I was 16. In Winnipeg, we had, well, I think think in a number of places, they had what we referred to as milk bars. And basically, they were unlicensed clubs where there was no alcohol, the understanding, of course, was that people would buy, I guess, a lot of pop and would get high on the on the spot and uh, <laughs> and so friends of mine in high school took me to this one gay club that was called Detour that was in a deserted part of downtown uh, downtown Winnipeg and and that was where I had my first experience dancing with men dancing to disco music and this was one of the first songs that I got to dance to on a dance floor. And I have to say, I mean, I was this this skinny, shaggy-haired, pimply, I think fairly unattractive kid. And it was a place where I felt really free and where I felt I could be myself. And I felt, that I could belong and be accepted. So you're 16 and
1: your friends took you there. The implication is you're already out to your friends.
0: I'm already out to some of my friends in high school. I came out in high school and unlike other kids in high school who were outed and had terrible, horrible bullying experiences, I came out and I came out quite publicly and I was largely left alone for it. That's good. Yeah, it was a relief. I had been picked on almost up until that exact moment. And then the moment that I came out, in a lot of ways, the kids who were pick, who were picking on me, I think felt that they would be implicated in some way, you know, if they were associated with me, that hmm. there was some issue with them and their sexuality that would be put under the microscope. So, they actually just Essentially, fled, which was <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am very aware that not everyone has this happy story, and particularly not in like 1978 or 79. So, um, so I was I was blessed, but I also was very much a loner in school, and uh, and remained that way until I got out of it. So, my mother, I think, was dimly aware that. Wherever I could possibly be going was not a good place for me to be going, Mm -hmm. but she didn't resist a great deal. And then once I was old enough to drink, there really wasn't much she could do. And that's when I started going to um, actual gay clubs and, and bars in the city. And keep in mind, it's still Winnipeg. It's like 1980. You have very limited resources as a gay person, and a lot of limits in the way of gay spaces. But at least there was something.
1: Ballpark figure in terms of number of gay bars in Winnipeg in 1980?
0: Oh, let's see. Well, the gay bars in Winnipeg in 1980 consisted of three, I think, that were in hotels, either in lobbies or on, on upper floors. Um, one of those I think was a cocktail lounge. Uh, there was a private club, which was called happenings which was basically in a bunker like there was an there was a steel door and you opened it and there was someone who had to buzz you in and you had to go down the stairs and it was in the basement and like many of these places it was it was a shared space among all genders and sexualities like there was a lesbian corner there was a gay corner there was a drag corner there was a leather corner and then you ran out of corners (laughs) so um that was just basic what you got and um there was possibly maybe one other club there were two sort of bath houses there was not a lot and a lot of it was class-based a lot of it to a certain extent given that it was winnipeg was race-based a lot of it was you know how old you were how you presented and stuff like that um I managed, I think, in the time that I was there, not to go – I didn't go to both bathhouses, but I did go to every gay space that there was. There were also straight clubs that were mixed. Uh, There was one disco in particular, sadly called Disco Inferno. Um, However, it had drag shows, and it had a gay-straight mixed patronage and and sometimes gay nights, and that was often a compromise that you saw in smaller cities during that period and i think is a compromise you see in smaller cities today too here's a
1: narrative that i've had presented to me and uh, you as someone who who lived in this time you can you can tell me how accurate it is were the late 70s sort of more friendly and accepting of homosexuality than the 80s turned out to be
0: um not uniformly <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, they were among people who wanted to be hip and cool and on the cutting edge hmm. you know as as the as the disco movement rose and as queer people were elevated as part of that through fashion uh, through music through through the culture in general there was there was a desire to to You know, have the same kind of fun that the queer people were having. And, uh, and so there was. Nominally, that kind of acceptance. Mm -hmm. That said, one step away from that, you found exactly the same intolerance that you always found. Um, When we left these clubs, we were careful going home. When Mm -hmm. we, you know, we never went alone, we always went in groups, we always were careful going to the car. I'll always remember that one of my first experiences at Happenings, the private club that was in the basement, there was a bomb scare. Hmm. And the police came in and we all froze because, like, what do you do? Were we going to be evacuated? Were we going to be arrested? Did anyone have drugs on the premises? Was the place going to be closed down? These were very serious concerns. And I was just 18. So this you know, was a realization of all my mother's worst fears about what could happen to me. In the end, all that happened was they closed down the club for the night and we all went home. But it was genuinely scary. And there are certainly circumstances where people will call in a bomb scare in order to clear the club so that bashers who are outside the club will attack you so we' we were always aware that whatever idyllic thing was going on inside of the spaces that we called our own one step outside of it that acceptance was not there yeah yeah there were many good times and I was accepted by a remarkable number of people I've always been out at work I've always I was out in my final years of school I, I was out to people who I created with whether it was for theater or for film or for television at a time when it was not normal to be out where where people looked askance at you when you brought that to the table, but the world was changing, and I felt comfortable being able to to help push that change
1: yeah, good I mean we need people in the vanguard, so it's nice that you were able to do that. <laughs> Well, why don't we talk a little bit more about the song? So, I mean, you, you liked it at the time. You gave me the story of dancing to it on your first night out.
0: How do you feel about it now? It is still a song that takes me back. And what I've always liked about it, it too has an interesting tension within it. It has a huge lush romantic feel to it. It feels very up and positive and dancy. It has great big gospel y sort of, you know, bursts, you know, through it. But it's about a woman who is pleading with her lover not to dump her. Mm -hmm. So the the I find the contrast between the presentation and the content really interesting. And it's an anthem for gay men of that period, absolutely it was one of those songs where the moment that you heard the first few notes, people ran to the dance floor just so they could have the opportunity you know to throw their arms in the air and go, "Baby <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know uh, it's just it 's just a really terrific song and really emblematic. Of That period. Disco later on became lighter and in some ways insubstantial in comparison. This was a really interesting combination of light and dark that uh, I found uh, especially enticing. I think of it as sad disco, which is
1: something that I think of more familiar with the sort of disco inflected and influenced music of the last decade you know robin dancing on my own and things like that
0: there is absolutely a direct connection between don't leave me this way and dancing on my own you can draw an absolutely flat line and i think that's fantastic Mm -hmm. absolutely so we're going to be moving into the 1980s now
1: yes and we have well why don't you tell us what we have next
0: So we have Song to the Siren, which is a song that was written by Tim Buckley and his writing partner, Larry Beckett. in uh, it, as the Tim Buckley version, dates back to 1970. So we still are in the haze of the psychedelic folk rock sort of period that we think of as the swinging 60s. However, this version was uh, recorded much later by a group of, of new wave musicians and and sort of progressive art rock musicians of the 80s uh, who came together under the name This Mortal Coil. And by this time, I had moved to Toronto. I was writing for theater. I had um, not necessarily the wealthiest career, but I certainly had a a good career was well known and this song was very much part of a sensibility that i felt that we were all working in where we were looking at the romance of previous periods of music and we were and we were being ironic with them we were looking at them critically we were analyzing them and and we were finding new ways for that stuff to resonate with us. And I when I first heard this song, I thought it was one of the most beautiful songs I'd ever heard. And yet, it had a creepy edge to it that innately appealed to me. Yeah,
1: there's something a little bit goth about it. And I suppose this is the sort of heyday for that.
0: It is, absolutely. And it represented in its way, a creative way of dealing with a lot of what was going on in the world at large, In the queer community, at this point, HIV hasn't been named yet, but AIDS certainly has. And there is an awareness that queer communities are in danger. And I had actually just moved to Toronto when this album was released. And so I already had lost one friend, and that was in Winnipeg and I already knew people who were ill, and within a few years, I would be working at the AIDS Committee of Toronto. So the the edge and the darkness, and still the romanticism that are all a part of this song, really take me back to that period.
1: Hmm. I mean, when I read the lyrics, uh, it's a fairly straightforward retelling of the myth of the siren i mean very very emotionally inflected and you know uh rich with metaphor with uh, imagery and so forth but um i mean is that too easy to read on to that the 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 desire that brings you to wreck on the rocks like
0: well i think that it's interesting looking at it as the song does from the position of the sailor who wants to surrender to her Mm -hmm. um and because, I mean, conventionally, a siren ha- in a lot of popular culture has been portrayed, uh, you know, through Little Mermaid and things like that as a kind of a romantic figure, um, not necessarily as someone who is going to, you know, destroy you. And and so it was interesting having that image being placed in the middle of uh, sort of pop counterculture of of the '80s and the '90s, I, of course, being Ukrainian, we have a we have a creature called a rusalka, and uh, and she is a siren of sorts, and she lives in lakes, and she attracts. Men, she attracts children, and of course, she lures them into drowning. And as children, we were always told that uh, you were not supposed to go near the lake; a Rasalka could catch you. And uh, it was very effective. And uh, and yet, the Rasalka is um, for anyone who's in Winnipeg is 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 a focal. Concept we have a we have a a dance troupe that's named the Rasalka Dancers and that was another thing that was intriguing about this is on one hand she's a terrifying creature on the other hand she's she's emblematic of something why is it that we're elevating her name and her and her image in this way I think that where the siren. Is most interesting is where fear and desire intersect. Mm-hmm. We are often afraid of the things we desire. We often desire the things we fear. And she is representative of that. And to me, the song about his surrender to that is him giving in to that desire and letting go of his fear. In this case, his literal fear of dying because he is so overwhelmed by her. Mm. It's a beautiful song. Yeah. Tim Buckley's version is also exquisite, but of course is is much more folky. And uh, it's just basically him and a guitar. And the contrast between the two is very interesting.
1: This is Tim Buckley, Jeff Buckley's dad. Yes. For callow youth like myself.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Who died when he was quite young and who was not as successful as he could have been had he lived longer. So I'm thinking about you in Toronto. Mm.
1: You've arrived around the time that this album would have been released. Yes. You have a successful artistic career blossoming. You're still a fairly young man. Mm -hmm. You said you were born in 62? '62? So you're only 22. So I
0: I arrived at 22. And on one hand, it was exhausting and frightening. But on the other hand, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And the house that I was in had several other gay men living in it, and they were kind enough considering, you know, how young and what a mess I was, they were kind enough to take me to clubs and bars and to events that they went to. And I, you know, I wasn't really ever completely part of their gang, but I was someone who they sort of, you know, allowed to tag along. Mm-hmm. And and that was really my way of learning about adult gay life in a big city while still remaining a bit insulated.
1: Things were still centered on Church Street back then, yes?
0: Yeah. Well, no, actually. The village didn't really exist yet. There were things on Church Street, but there were also bars and restaurants that were gay-identified in Cabbage Town. The leather bar that uh, was most prominent in Toronto was the Toolbox, which was at 18 Eastern Avenue, which is quite far south of everything uh, that we now associate as the village. The village didn't really coalesce until about four or five years later. And that's when we started having a critical mass of bars and clubs and services on Church Street, including the second cup that had the famous steps (laughs) and the barn and various other places. Let me tell you a bit about the toolbox. Please. Okay. So it was, as you might expect, a bit of a dark and dingy bar. But it had at one point brunch on the weekends <laughs> at like 10 or 11 in the morning, and we would trundle down and go and have brunch at the toolbox. On weekend afternoons, they had euchre, uh, <laughs> for the, <laughs> for the older leathery crowd. And it had a dance floor and people there. W- it was actually of the bars that I went to. It was the friendliest. It was the most accepting. I, I had no, great interest in leather i had no great interest in hooking up with any of the people who were there and i'm sure i looked quite odd compared to the rest of the clientele but everyone was very warm very positive very open very accepting and it was often a lot of fun to go there and i kind of missed that the other thing that was interesting about it was that it had a hell's angels clubhouse across the street so, there was very little trouble, either from bashers or from the police. We were left alone there in ways that we were not in other parts of the city. That's fantastic. Um, was it that the Hells Angels were sort of allied
1: with you, or there was just sort of a natural, like a Remora hanging onto a shark kind of a thing?
0: I I don't want to characterize the Hells Angels in any way, but I think that we had some common interests. And I am sure that they had some goods or services that they were offering that gay men in that area Mm, were probably acquiring. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, again, who knows? I was young. I don't remember. I didn't acquire any of it. But I'm sure that there was a symbiotic (laughs) relationship there.
1: Good. (laughs) I want to ask you more about AIDS and HIV. Sure. Is it better to do that under the sort of ages of this song or the next one? Because I kind of anticipated the next one.
0: (laughs) I think we can do both. Okay. But I can tell you a bit about what it was like during this early part of the AIDS-HIV crisis. So I'll start this part of the story by telling the Winnipeg story, which was in the within the two years before I left. There was an awareness, and it was really fast once we became aware of it. There was an awareness that friends of ours who traveled were getting sick. And then suddenly, there was a Time magazine cover that indicated that there was a gay cancer that was starting to spread. And this, of course, was frightening. But you think to yourself, or at least we thought to ourselves, oh, we're a small city. We're a small community. It's all happening out there. It's happening in New York. It's happening in Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's happening in Europe. We're relatively safe. And then we had a visit, and I think it was from the person who was popularly known as Dr. Peter, who himself was ill and was going across the country and was advising people, no, no, this is in Canada. This is with us now. And you have to be aware of this. And this is what the symptoms are. One of the most powerful times that i had in winnipeg was when i was with a close friend of mine and we went to basically what was a town hall for the gay community where this was being uh raised and discussed and i turned to my friend and i said oh my god he's describing lyle and lyle was our roommate who was, I think at that point, 21 years old. And he was a handsome, buff, exuberant young man. He... Uh, I'm going to tear up as I talk about this. He was uh, stripping to make money, to go to school, as people did at that time, and he was doing, I think, some sex work on the side. But for him, it was really a celebration of his body and a celebration of his sexuality, and he was really enjoying himself. He was really into being someone who was desired. And only within the past four or five months, he had started becoming ill and there were odd discolorations he was having trouble with, with what we thought was asthma but was clearly something else he was starting to get skinnier and we sat there in this town hall and we were just like oh my god what did we do so we went home we went directly home after it was over and we sat him down and we said we just went to this event They just described this whole thing. This sounds like stuff that's happening to you. You have to go see the doctor. And as one would, he completely freaked out. He completely freaked out. And we discussed it that weekend over and over, and he refused to go to the doctor. He refused to deal with any of it. He was just completely terrified. He didn't want any of it to be happening. He didn't want to know anything. And within about six months, he was dead and it was it was the canary in the coal mine for something that we all experienced he was one of the loveliest people and we lost a lot of lovely people people who were desired people who were enjoyed and people who desired and enjoyed themselves and and you know people who were the bright lights of that generation who you wanted to be with who you who you, you know, not only in a sexual way, but people who are just lovely. And, um, and it was cruel that that whole strata of people just vanished. Now, I mean, truly some awful people died as well. <laughs> However, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's the thing about a virus is it yes. doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care who you are, except that this one was spread through sex. And because it was spread through sex, the people who were the most sexual, the most desirable, the most magnetic, the most energetic, the most incandescent were the ones who were the most in peril. Yeah sorry. It's sad. I mean, I look back and I lost, and I mean, I, for me, it's a conservative number compared to many others. I lost dozens and dozens of friends and acquaintances and coworkers and people who I admired and looked up to in in my life. And through that whole period, I have to admit, I was mystified about why I was left. Hmm. I'm certainly not alone in feeling that. There are any number of people my age and slightly older and slightly younger who were left standing and just wondering how it was that we were missed. What exactly happened to to save us instead of other people?
1: So in any sort of catastrophe where the fickle hand of fate spares you and not your friends – Oftentimes,
0: there's a survivor's guilt. Absolutely. And it's acutely painful. It is very difficult. And particularly for people who you were close to, who you shared moments with, who you went to particular places with, it's as if those people are alive in front of you. It's that feeling you have that ghosts are real. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I did, which was probably foolish, (laughs) was shortly after I moved to Toronto, I took a trip back to Winnipeg and I got together with an old friend of mine and I said, you know what I'd like to do is I would like to go to where Detour was. And he said, well, why would you want to do that? And I said, I just want to see it. And so we went back to this deserted part of Winnipeg, and we went to the building, and and where Detour had been, there was now a Pier 1 Imports. <laughs> and it was close to closing. It was like there was probably 15 minutes left. And so we burst in, and the person who is trying to like wrap up for the night is like, can I help you? And I said, no, 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 we're just here to look around. And then I said, okay, the fireplace was over here. (laughs) And (laughs) then, uh, my friend said, yeah. And the couches were over here. And I remember the night that you brought the 3d glasses from the movie and we put them on the table here. And then we all sat around for the night and we were all wearing 3d glasses. And I said, yeah, I had a headache for a week. (laughs) And, uh, and he said, so where were the stairs that led to the dance floor? And I said, well, they must be. Th-. She said, you can't go in there. I said, we're not going in. We're not going in. We're just looking. So the stairs were up there. They must have got, it must have been like that. And this was like, we're talking at most a three or four year gap, but already it felt like ancient history. Already it felt like something that we had loved had just been papered over. And that feeling happened again and again and again and again and again throughout the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s. Just that feeling that things were continually being pulled away from you. You know, the things you love, the people you love, things were continually being papered over or erased, and that you were constantly having to keep up, and that you never had enough time to grieve. That's the number one thing I'll always feel, is that I never had enough time to grieve. So, up next we have
1: Nina Simone with Everything Must Change, which, in a dark way, feels very, very fitting to what you're talking about.
0: A song that I first heard in the early to mid-90s, and uh, because A Boyfriend had the album. The album is Baltimore. And the Baltimore album is relatively obscure uh, among Nina Simone albums. And it's a difficult listen, because she is already in decay. She is not sober for... I would say almost the entire album she is forgetting lyrics she is she is struggling to to get through certain songs I mean she always was and rightfully so an angry singer and that was a positive thing that she brought to her material but some of this had an acidic edge that was uh not really palatable at the time so it was not a hit however there are several songs on it that are extraordinary, and uh, and this was one of them. And the first time I heard this song, it connected with me on such a deep level, and it so summarized the journey that I had been through um, in Toronto to that moment, where you could continue to fight, continue to be angry all the time, continue to despair or you acknowledge that things change and it was interesting because um this boyfriend that i had i was with we were together for about i guess two or three years um it was one of those relationships where uh we Had very different opinions and feelings on political issues, on social issues, on cultural issues. He knew a great deal more than me about some stuff, but some of the stuff that that he believed I just could not get behind. We would fight the more we fought. hotter the sex was so (laughs) it became one of those relationships where it's like you know we didn't want to break up because it was so hot but we couldn't stay together and so you know and there was a lot of turn back and forth in that way and then finally we did break up and it was a good thing in a lot of ways that we broke up but this song again was just a a, an emblem of that period for me and um, and really marked a change in the way that I started to see the world and started to see um, my place in it, Uh, my place in the communities that I was in, but also... Uh, and my place in the creative communities is, uh, that I was in as well, but also just me in the world, and uh, and it was a, a very powerful moment for me. Also, of course, I have cried so many times listening to this song.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, Nina Simone has a her, a special power in that area. Uh, her voice is so emotive, mm-hmm. and the lyrics in this one in particular are just.
0: She is living that song as she sings. It. Oh yeah.
1: There's, <laughs> except the rain comes from the clouds, sunlight from the sky. Like, yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, just remembering it now. I, I get choked up some. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Nina Simone fan and I'm, for a variety of reasons, uh, I was almost went to music school for piano. So I've always admired her as a pianist and her, her vocals are just astonishing and, and politically she's very interesting. Um, but yeah, like she can just lay you flat. Emotionally, and this song did that. Uh, I wasn't familiar with it, I guess, because it is from this obscure album. There's just such a huge catalog of hers to digest, and there. You know? were, and
0: she was revived by you know a song that was in a car commercial. So I mean, a lot of a lot of the stuff that we know her now for is the stuff that is not as emotionally confrontative. That stuff is certainly there. I mean, this song is on Spotify. People can go. Uh, and I encourage everyone, go and find the most difficult, challenging content that she has, because she is an absolute force. But there is a lot of material there that is also not quite so hard-hitting or in your face. Mm.
1: So you said that this song sort of summarized your experiences in Toronto up until that point.
0: Exactly. I mean the loss in particular the having to you know move on in the face of that um not knowing how to move on not knowing what to do um all of us at this point were channeling a lot of our anger and despair into our work, which was probably the right thing to do as writers, as creators, to be making material that addressed this kind of uh, loss head-on. But, I mean, you run the risk of being trapped in it. Mm. You want to honor and respect Everybody who've lost, you want to take that moment—the moments that we were often denied—to grieve for people, but you also need to be able to feel like you're moving forward. And for a long time, that feeling was just not happening. It—it it took. I mean, as we know, it took changes in health policies, it took changes in government, it took new drugs, it took um, a a real sort of uh, gathering of community, um, a real – feeling of of fight and positive force and mutual support in order to be able to get out of the mire at all and um and even then it's not like it happened once it was a constant push again and again so this was this was I think this was a way that a lot of us grieved during this period was you would find like almost these like micro moments where it was one particular song, one particular memory, you know, one particular scene in a movie, one particular rerun on TV, you know, that, you know, you would see someone... Someone's mutual friend, We, you know, on the street with their dog. You'd spend a few minutes with them, you'd shed some tears, you'd move on, you'd go to the store. Like, it was just that kind of thing.
1: I'm thinking, and I'm looking over the song lyrics again. Hmm. So this is sort of inaugurated a kind of an ability to start looking for and accept that all of these awful, continual takings away and changes had been happening. At least that's how I feel you've characterized it to me. Totally. Um, was there a sense of hope, and how did you cultivate it? If there was,
0: well, I mean, ultimately, yes. You know, in the way that the seasons change. You know, the you 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 find new friends you build new relationships you you see work that inspires you 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 find places that that you can go to that feel untouched by everything that's happening or has happened and and over time you think to yourself okay there's more to life than just its end and the end has not arrived yet and as part of you know respecting and honoring and acknowledging and mourning, there is the next step, which is the moving forward, and in some cases, moving forward with all those people in mind, because they would have moved forward too, and they should have moved forward alongside you. And you see this in a lot of the work that comes in the later 90s and through the 2000s, where queer artists are Realizing that it's important to commemorate things. It's important to record things. It's important to capture the history that we have and get it down before everybody's gone. That it's important to look back, recreate, reinvent stuff and bring it, you know, forward in a new way to new audiences. And a new vitality starts to, to manifest itself. At least I think it does. But it took a hell of a lot to get to that. So, the Bone Mother. The Bone Mother.
1: You, you told us at the start of the podcast the t- sort of two-part structure with the monsters in Eastern Europe, the sort of last of their kind in the sort of shadow of World War II? Yep. Yeah. And then they're sort of the, the, are they the descendants? Are they human descendants
0: of these monsters? There are some supernatural elements to the, to the, uh, modern-day characters. And, uh, I will leave that to the readers to find. Also, mm-hmm. it's not always clear what the connection is both between the past and present creatures and also among the past creatures, but there is definitely a through line. Mm-hmm. And so there's it, it, it's a bit of a puzzle book in that way. It's sort of it's a pre-apocalyptic supernatural horror story. <laughs>
1: That's a great tagline. Is Florence one of your modern Half monsters.
0: (laughs) Oh, I would say so. So the next song is Howl by Florence and the Machine. I mean, obviously, it feeds into a lot of my sensibility. The, the, it's sort of a mirror to Song to the Siren from earlier on. It has an exalted romantic quality that is very much connected to songs like Don't Leave Me This Way. And it also has critically, um, a very strong monster at the heart of the song, deeply woven into the imagery. The goth element is is full on, as it should be with her. And yet it's a song that didn't get, I think, nearly enough attention when the album came out. I think it's an incredibly articulate a depiction of the destructiveness of young love, both self destructiveness and the destructiveness uh, of uh, towards your partner and towards everything. Uh, it's it's just uh, a great big sweeping melodramatic thing. It's a so it's almost like an angry punky version of Kate Bush. It's that mm. kind of stuff that I really that I really love. Yes, because
1: I mean there are ghosts in Kate Bush, but this is more of a werewolf. That's uh Licking your exposed heart. Oh yeah, <laughs>
0: absolutely, tearing you apart. It's just, you know, it's just filled with wonderfully vivid imagery. And as soon as I heard it, I thought to myself, I want to have this for something. This has to be somewhere. And where I ended up using it, and Song of the Siren, actually, now that I now that I think about it, was I held the launch for my book at Glad Day and mm-hmm. i hired a uh a singer that i know a singer songwriter that i know named gareth bush who is no relation who uh who <laughs> uh was going to and normally he you know he has his own stuff that he does but he also plays weddings and stuff like that and he's a he's a lovely amiable straight guy and i said to him i want to hire you to come play my launch and i want you to play two songs that you would never in a million years normally sing and he was like Okay, and so I Oof. handed them over to him, and he did just a spectacular job. He mm. he played. Um, song to the siren for me it was perfect from moment one he did it very much based on the buckley version since it was Mm. just him and a guitar rather than the this mortal coil version still very moving very beautifully done and they i had i only had to give him one sort of note when it came to singing howl and that was that at a, a particular point i said i just want you to stop playing and start screaming and he was like and i was he was hesitant but he did it, and it was very, very effective. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, uh, listening to you say that, um, so understanding that he went with the Buckley version of uh, the uh, song of the Siren is like, oh, okay, so like. I was thinking Elizabeth Frazier and uh, Florence of Florence and the Machine are two very, very distinctive female voices. Oh, yeah. I was like, okay, so he wasn't doing Elizabeth Fraser. okay. No, right.
0: and I don't think he really could have, but no. uh, but, but yes, yeah. uh, once we got to him doing Howl, he really poured himself into it. And it's the kind of song that benefits from you pouring yourself into it.
1: Yes, yes, you have to belt that. <laughs> so here's a question. Uh, are you the kind of writer who can listen to music while you write? And if you do, is that something you find helpful or inspiring? Or do you have to keep the language center for your brain free of influence? Well,
0: I have a way around this. I never used to listen to music at all. I did find music extremely disruptive to my writing process. and uh, And one of the things that I tried – when so, I've got to say to people, you know, if there's a thing that you've been avoiding doing, or if there's a thing that you did that didn't work ten years ago, maybe revisit it. In this case, what happened uh, when I was writing what turned into the Bone Mother was I had bought uh, an internet radio mm-hmm. that I have sitting over, you know, on a credenza alongside, you know, me in the living room, and it came with some stations pre-programmed, but then there was other stuff that you could search through, and I thought to myself. I would really like something that if it has words, I don't understand them. Mm. And I ended up finding <laughs> – it's going to sound so weird. I ended up finding a station from Goa that had psychedelic chill music. And I thought, oh, okay. So I tried it out, and I thought, holy shit, I could totally write to this. I could totally right to this and that whole book wouldn't have happened if I had not had that station on that was the music that put me right into the mental zone throughout that whole process and uh and to this day I continue to listen to that station and then some other music throughout but I do find it hard to have someone singing English lyrics in particular um mm-hmm. I do find that that is intrusive. Um, other kinds of music, as it turns out, um, and not even necessarily music that's tied to the mood of what I'm writing, but something sort of in the background to occupy part of my brain seems to let the rest of my brain come free. So so yeah, I uh, if it's something you haven't tried as a writer, then I encourage you to check it out. And if you aren't using the right music, then try experimenting and see what you can find.
1: I listen to really aggressive dubstep and techno because there's no words but it's really energetic and so it keeps me from getting bored and tired. <laughs> I think that
0: there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I know I know people, particularly horror writers in the US, who listen to like screaming death metal like just incredibly loud, angry me- and and it gets them in the right state for the for what they're trying to achieve in their work. And I'm not saying that I won't want to get there. <laughs> that day may come. Um, But right now, I'm finding it useful to have music that almost has more of a drone to it, and that almost Mm. um, sort of creates an atmosphere or an environment all by itself that I can just sort of let happen and sink into.
1: So having had a smash success with your first novel, uh, are you converted to that form now, or are you going to go back to writing for the stage? Or what are your plans?
0: Well, the new book, I am about... 60% of the way through. I am hoping to get a solid draft done by Christmas. It is a novel. Um, It's called Red X, unless I get talked out of that title. Currently it's called Red X. And you won't be surprised considering the conversation we've had uh, when I tell you that it is about 40 years of history in queer Toronto and how Gay men, primarily, are being taken one by one by one by one over that period by something. Hmm. It will turn out, here comes a spoiler, that in fact we can go back over more than 200 years to discover that something has been taking men who have sex with men one by one by one by one. So um, it's creepy. Yeah. Uh I I started writing it before we had a real life example of this and this
1: is what was on my tongue and I was trying to figure out how to word yes, it. Yes.
0: <laughs> uh it was on it this was on my mind not uh before Bruce MacArthur's alleged killings but certainly uh before we identified him with them. But it's I mean it's a phenomenon that obviously extends beyond any one killer, any one incident, any one disease, frankly. It's about who can be taken without people noticing, without people investigating, without people raising a cry, and why that is, why the marginalized are are able to be taken this way. And even if you think you're not marginalized, something reveals once again, yes, you are you're totally marginalized. And and so that's a big part of it. The In between the five sections of the book, uh, which are eight years apart, there are essays by me. Personal essays about my experiences, about my thoughts around queerness and horror, about what I'm afraid of, about um, uh, my insights into the very book that I'm writing, which is unusual. And and then the other thing that's an odd component to the book is that someone has been writing things into the margins of the book. So there are handwritten things that are their own narrative. That's what you can look forward to. <laughs> More fun from David Demchuk.
1: <laughs> well, it does sound, well, it does sound creepy, but um, it sounds very well, fun isn't necessarily the word, but it does sound very engaging. I mean, I—who can be taken? Uh I just always think about reading an essay. I wish I could remember who wrote it and what the title was and where I was reading it. But about you know when the uh, when AIDS sort of started getting going and. You had these sort of conservative gay white men who had corporate jobs and sort of lived good upstanding lives, and then when they got sick, like no one no one cared. No. <laughs> like you know no. it's like, Oh, you can adapt to a hetero lifestyle all you want, but like they're not gonna care. Like,
0: no. You were a cog in the machine all along. You were you were wallpaper. You you may have thought that you mattered, and maybe To one or two of those people, you mattered a bit, but when push came to shove, they took their hands right off of you. And it was a real lesson, I think. I mean, one of the lessons that is in Angels in America, which is, you know, such an incredible piece of work, is that, you know, even when those people turn their back on you, the queer community, even if it hates you, is there for you <laughs> because at least among some of us, we take care of our own.
1: So I guess this is where we can end the conversation. Where can people find your work if they want to check it out?
0: Well, I mean, one way to find it is through my website, which is com. So that's D A V I D D E M C H U K.com. That has a link to all the places where you can buy the book. Uh, there is also the bone mother. which also has, uh, links to everything. And there's also my publisher's website, which is cheesing pub, uh, dot com dot C O M.
1: Uh, shall we, shall we tell people that you're on Twitter? You're on the hell website called Twitter.
0: (laughs) If you should have no other choice, you can find me on Twitter. I have two Twitter accounts that people could find me on. One is at sign DD underscore Toronto. That's my personal account. My more professional, less obscene account is at sign David underscore Demchuk, D-E-M-C-H-U-K
1: wonderful thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today well
0: thank you very much for having me on your show this is wonderful
1: many thanks to david for sharing his life and music with us and thanks to you listener for joining us this is your mixtape is a proud part of the megaphonic podcast network check out all of our fancy little shows at megaphonic.fm such as the opposite of lonely the most recent episode of The Opposite of Lonely investigates what it's like to move to a new city, much like David did in his early 20s when he came to Toronto from Winnipeg. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, check out the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 17. My name is Michael Collins, and you can find me on Twitter at Earl King. Please do at me. I hope you enjoyed today's musical journey. and We'll see you next time.